It's time for another Game Day, hosted by Flames Nation and Barn Burner at Greta Bar YYC. Join the crew at our favorite Game Day watch party spot, Greta Bar YYC, Saturday, March 23rd to watch Calgary take on Vancouver. Doors open at 7 p.m. Tickets are $10. Good food, good prizes, and a guaranteed good time. This event is brought to you by McLeod Law LLP and Village Honda. Get your tickets at nationgear.ca before they sell out. Well, our next guest, uh, grab a glass of water. We're going to read through the resume. He's accomplished an incredibly large amount of success in his coaching career. Uh, five different countries outside the NHL where he's coached. He's coached for Canada many times, a gold medal at the World Juniors, uh, three silvers at World Championships, a silver and bronze at the Men's Olympic Tournament. Uh, started at the University of Saskatchewan in 1972 in his coaching career, at least as far as my research, uh, latest action 2018 at the Pyeongchang Olympics. That is five decades of coaching hockey. He is a former head coach of the Calgary Flames, a decade and a half in the NHL. He has received the Order of Canada and the Order of Hockey in Canada. Uh, Dave, this is this is a tough intro to get through. You've, you've accomplished a ton. <laughs> Mr. Dave King joins us from his uh, summer cabin in Waskasoo, Saskatchewan. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Ryan. And just uh, what you just said uh, proves one thing. I have fooled a lot of people over the last five decades. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would joke, but I mean, longevity in coaching is, is not easily done. And I think uh, that would that's a, a huge feather in your cap because it probably means you've had to evolve with the game and you've probably seen a ton of evolution within the sport from your time in 1972, coaching university hockey all the way through to the group of amateurs you took to North Korea at the Olympics a few years ago. You know, Ryan, you're right. I, I've, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed my coaching career and I've always felt coaching is a little like sailing. You know, you can't control the winds, but you can adjust the sails. And that ability to adapt, not only long-term, but short-term during one season, uh, that's really important for coaching staffs because you can't control injuries. You can't control a certain player having a great season or not such a great season. Uh, there's a lot of things out of your control when you're coaching. And so uh, that ability to adapt and adjust, uh, that makes the difference. I've always enjoyed your perspective on the game. I think probably when you started, the profession was filled with a lot of like dictators and sort of autocratic type coaches. And I've always felt like you've been incredibly open-minded to new ideas and uh, you know, maybe would have many different methods of communicating when in the 70s, 80s and 90s, that seems like that maybe was against the grain. Is that fair? Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what generation you coach in or what decade you coach in, you know, the ability to communicate is really, really important. And our clientele has changed. Players are more entitled now. I think they're much more intelligent now. They're well coached all the way up through the game. So they know the game when they come to you. And uh, so coaching is, a, it's not an easy profession. Um, there's times when uh, I, I've always felt for coaches, one of the keys is to be hard to please, but easy to play for. Now, that's a nice little expression. And in, in every season, there's times when that's what it is. You are hard to please, but you're easy to play for. But there are times that arise, Ryan, where you're not so easy to play for. And performance fluctuates. And that's why uh, coaching is so difficult. Uh, performance constantly changes. 
And uh, you have to, as I said before, be able to adapt. Uh, and it's really interesting because you establish relationships with players. And that's a very important part of creating a good environment to play. Because I really believe the more and more I even, I've stepped back from the game now, but uh, the atmosphere, the environment you create is really important to your success. And uh, that's built and, and predicated upon trust. So when you have to bench a player or you move a player off the power play or whatever it might be, you, you essentially in his mind, you've broken the trust. And so now you have to not just, you've established a, a relationship. Now you got to repair it. And so coaching is, uh, I'm not sure people understand how difficult it is because uh, it's really, and it's very interesting. That's for sure. Uh, I, I think our, our audience is primarily Southern Alberta. Lots of Calgary folks. Our studios are in Martelloup here in Calgary. People certainly would remember you for your time with Hockey Canada, where you were based out of Calgary for ages. And then also when you got your big NHL opportunity with the Calgary Flames, 1992-93 season, one of three seasons, you were the head coach of the Flames. But how did you get to that point? Uh, I mean, I don't think people under 30 would really understand the concept of the Canadian national team and what that was and how that worked. And it, you spent nearly a full decade running that program. What did it mean? How did you get there? And what type of a coach did you have to be working with those athletes that weren't NHLers, but kind of were mm -hmm. pros in a weird way that I think it, it made it all made sense at the time, but looking back, like what the heck was this national team? Well, you know, that's a very good question, Ryan. And, uh, uh, father Bauer back in the sixties, to compete at the Olympics, pros weren't allowed. So Canada wasn't very competitive. So they formed a, an ongoing full-time national team that lasted for five or six years. And then it, uh, uh, it was disbanded. And then back in the, uh, in the early eighties, uh, hockey Canada decided again to be more competitive. We should attempt to establish a full-time national team and let it evolve. Recognizing players would leave to go to the NHL, uh, if they got good enough, uh, but hopefully you'd have a core go with you for three or four years and establish a pretty competitive uh, Olympic team because the competition was really tough. When the NHL teams played uh, those national teams from Czech, Russia, Sweden in the uh, World Cup or Canada Cup, you could see how difficult it was. And imagine uh, younger guys, less experienced, not as good players playing against them. It, it was challenging. So I guess to answer your question, um, I really enjoyed it. We had a lot of players that had been had a cup of coffee in the American Hockey League, a lot of ex-college and junior players, all very excited to develop their skills and get better. And the program kind of gained a reputation because we had so many players every year leave us and go to the NHL. We got a good reputation for developing players, and that was really critical. So we were able to keep some players for three or four years, establish a pretty good team, and, and compete on behalf of Canada. And it was an interesting concept. And uh, in those days, Sam Pollock, Alan Eagleson were the guys that were the, uh, the head of Hockey Canada. So it was a really good learning experience for me. And uh, it, it made me a better coach. Uh, people think I became very a defensive coach. Uh, I guess we did because we didn't have the puck very much against some of those <laughs> Russian teams. So we, we did play pretty well defensively. It's funny because, you know, right now, the best players in the world, they just generally all end up in the NHL pretty quickly. And some of them have to wait a few more years till they're out of contract in Russia. And some might, you know, cook a little longer in Sweden or Czech or Finland or go to the American League. But all the best players just 
they get to the NHL. That seems to be how it works. But in, in that era, I mean, I feel like this whole national team program was built upon we got to go play Russia and their best guys aren't over here, or there's still many of their best that are over there. And you noted some other countries as well, but because Russians couldn't freely come to the NHL, that wasn't a thing that almost forced you guys to build a national team. Uh, it, it's weird how it was almost reactive in a sense. What did those teams look like? And what was that like? Cause you have cold war stuff going on. And then the way that the Russians did play and still to this day play quite differently as we'll talk about when you get to the KHL. I mean, that that would have been just an eye-opening, mind-blowing experience. Can you walk us through that dynamic of you know the seventies and eighties with with what Russia was doing? Well, the Russians were very good. They had really, really uh, solid teams, top to bottom. Uh, the best players in their country uh, were always gathered with Central Red Army. So it was like the Central Red Army team was about two thirds of the of their national team. So they were really strong. Uh, a lot of great names, Tretjak and those guys, you know, that were. Uh, really, really good players. It, it was a challenge for us. And so we had to really work at, at becoming very fit because their fitness was terrific stuff. And in those days, uh, still in the NHL, fitness hadn't really hit the, the backboard like it has now. Now it's, uh, but they cover every base. So we were a very fit young team, uh, very inexperienced. We had to kind of learn on the run, but every competition we were in, Ryan, I thought we came out of it uh, better mainly because not through coaching. It was just the, the players starting to understand uh, how they played and not being surprised by certain tactics. They reoccur during a game. And so our players became uh, really, I thought, capable to play against the Russians. It was hard to beat them. We could compete with them. But uh, our success in terms of winning against the national team was not impressive. But our effort was really impressive. Who were some of the names that uh, people would recognize that joined you? Maybe it was a player with a contract dispute or maybe someone that just needed a little seasoning before they went on to bigger NHL careers. Like what would some of the names be that joined you on the national teams over the, over that near decade? Well, over that period of time, we had players like uh, one of the best goalies I've ever coached, Sean Burke. Um, came out of junior, played with uh, New Jersey, had a bit of a contract dispute. He came with us and played so well for us and just a real young guy, 1920 at the time. And, and so Sean was real good. Cliff Ronning uh, played for us and he's a little guy at a junior five foot seven. No one thought he could play. And uh, so he was uh, just available and he came to us and just set the tone scoring and was just a buzzsaw on the ice and eventually was signed by St. Louis. Uh, Trent Yanni played four years for us and Trent played in the NHL for Calgary, Chicago, and has coached now in the NHL for a long time. Um, we had Eric Lindros, who was uh, with wow. us in, you know, in 92. Uh, Joe Juno, uh, guys like that that came to us. And uh, we had a really – our teams got better and better as we went along. In 84, we were young, kind of over our head, Ryan. And uh, we just competed our butts off. And we had James Patrick. Uh, we had uh, – uh, oh, gosh uh, – Dave Donnelly, we had uh, Mario Gosselin, goal. We had a real good young team, but the average age was about 22. Uh, and then in 88, we uh, had a real good hockey team. Uh, I think the pressure of playing in Calgary wasn't terrific for us. We won the Izvestia Cup that year in Moscow, came back, the expectations were high, and it was hard for the guys. But And then in 92, we had a, a real good team. We had a team uh, at that time, NHL players were now eligible. So we had a couple of guys like Dave Tippett came back, uh, Kurt Giles nice. came back, 
to stabilize our roster and give us some experience. And uh, boy, that really helped us a great deal. Man, I mean, it would be so fascinating because I think when people think about coaching these great players, and you mentioned some guys that are Hall of Famers that were on the national team. I mean, this wasn't just riffraff. Uh, it was it was guys that were in unique spots. To your point, Ronning, oh, he's too small. Well, he needs a home. Lindros, others, contract disputes. Uh, but you would probably have these the season would feel like maybe two thirds training camp and one third actual playing. Cause these are short tournaments you're taking these teams to or multiple short tournaments. That, that's going to be a very, very different approach than say an 82 game schedule. It is, you know, our schedule was about uh, 70 games, Ryan, and we played probably uh, 13 or 14 games in Canada. The rest of the games were played in, wow. uh, in Europe. We would go over, We'd train in Calgary for two weeks, and then we'd head to Europe uh, during their schedule break for the, or their leagues, and we'd play their national teams in tournaments. Uh, we played the, their club teams sometimes during the year. They would uh, work us into their schedule. So we were able to develop a real good competitive schedule, but it was very unique for a young player because they'd have maybe two weeks of training in Calgary, twice a day, really hard work. God, I was a numbskull. But anyway, it was hard on these kids and we well, we pushed them hard and they reacted well. And then when they got a chance to play, they were so damn excited about it. Having trained for two weeks, a game was a great thing. And so uh, it was a really good developmental schedule for us and it worked out really well. And uh, as I said, we became really competitive and uh, a lot of players really developed and went on and a lot of them are in coaching. That's one of the interesting things. A lot of guys I've coached are in coaching and I kind of always excited about that. Yeah, no kidding. That's good stuff. Uh, so then 1992 arrives. You are brought in to coach the Calgary Flames for the 92-93 season. That is not far removed from uh, the Stanley Cup. This is still a very good team. You still have the likes of Vernon and Suter and McInnes. I'm looking at young Theo Fleury, who I think was a rookie that cup year, is there. Makarov, the Russian. Like This was a, a pretty darn good team. Uh, Roberts, Reichel, I'm looking through. like A lot of holdovers from that cup team. Neuendijk. And yet it was part of a tough run for the team where they were good, but there was sort of these first round demons that got you. Where was the team at when you arrived and what were you looking at and dealing with in that locker room? Well, you're exactly correct. It was a, a very good team on the ice. They had had a difficult year the year before and uh, the bottom kind of fell out after winning the cup a couple of years previous to that. So um, they were an excellent group of players. Uh, uh, we had great regular seasons and uh, no excuses. We got into the playoffs and uh, we just found ways to, to lose. We just absolutely uh, didn't play poorly. We had, I don't know how many overtime games we had in three years, but it was amazing. And, you know, I mean, teams like LA went on to the Stanley cup final, Vancouver went on to the Stanley cup final. So we lost to teams that went on and went a long way, but it was disappointing for all of us because, uh, we did have good teams. We just didn't get the job done. And, you know, I'm largely responsible for a lot of that. Barn Burner comes to you from the Tower Chrysler Studios. Tower Chrysler, voted Calgary Sun's Reader's Choice Award winner for Southern Alberta's favorite Dodge Chrysler dealer. We've been very lucky and proud to have had Tower as a Barn Burner partner since day number one as our studio sponsor and vehicle supplier. How great did the Nation Truck and Nation Jeep look? Tower Chrysler. 10901 McLeod Trail South at the corner of McLeod and Southport Road. The Hearing Loss Clinic has been helping change people's lives for the better since 1993. 
At the Hearing Loss Clinic, it's never been about hearing impairment. It's been about empowering you to be socially active, more connected with those around you, and confident in every aspect of your life. People of any age can suffer from hearing loss, and studies have shown that serious health risks have been linked to untreated hearing loss. They have nine locations to serve you, four in the city of Calgary. Make a healthy choice and book an evaluation today at hearingloss.ca. Well, I, that's probably being a little too critical. I mean, it, it was it was it was weird. Since 1989, they didn't win another series till 04. That's that's a long yeah. time for a club. It just felt like you couldn't get a bounce here or there. Um, and, and you noted it a lot of overtime in there. W- what was young Theo Fleury like? Because you know he's written a couple books and talked about his trials and tribulations off days. Yeah. But at the time, I mean. Yeah. You've got this young dynamic player, but he's probably also a handful off the ice and you're trying to keep him out of trouble. That that would have been a really, really interesting relationship with him, the team, yourself. Yeah, it was. Theo was uh, like just full of energy. Just he was off the ice like he was on the ice, just full of energy, ready to go. And uh, I, I liked him as a player. He was high maintenance in terms of uh, you get into a, a difficult game and a close game. He might sometimes, uh, you know, get fired up on the ice too much and maybe take a penalty. However, many, many times um, in the course of a game, we weren't playing kind of lethargically and Theo would go out and start a a mess in the corner and somebody else had to go and clean up for him, but he got us going. And uh, that's one of the strengths of Theo's game. Terrific player, hardworking guy, but he was a real catalyst. He could take a game that was, uh, not unfolding the way you wanted it, he could change it. Now, sometimes uh, the other way too, we take a penalty at the wrong time. But for the most part, boy, he was a real terrific player. Um, and I followed his career a lot after that, you know. And uh, when I coached in Columbus, we had good talks when they came in to play us. And, uh, you know, Theo was a guy who, uh, uh, he was a real model for a, a lot of uh, uh, small players. Like he played and played very well at a time when small players couldn't play. He played before the rules yeah. were changed to allow small players to play and play effectively. So you got to give this guy a lot of credit. He was a great competitor. I'm always confused why he doesn't seem to get more love for the Hall of Fame, and they don't ever talk about their process. But I thought, man, if you want to talk about a guy that broke the mold, people his size just couldn't make it in the sport at the time. It was incredible what he accomplished on the ice. Yeah, Ryan, I totally agree with you. I think he's a, a natural uh, for the Hall of Fame because I'll tell you, in that era, you know, stick interference, uh, clutching and grabbing. Some guys who played in that era couldn't play now because they couldn't skate at the uh, tempo that they play now. So they had to use their sticks, use their hands, grab and hold and uh, slash. And uh, so Theo played through a lot of stuff and uh, he was terrific. And so it is good now that the rules have changed. I like the way the game has gone. Uh, now that's uh, a game of more skill makes a difference now more than ever before. At one time, it was just toughness. Uh, it was just the ability to check and hold. And and uh, the rule book was there, but no one enforced the rule book for yeah. the most part. That's fair. Um, okay, so bigger picture, your three years in Calgary. Uh, you know, we yeah. I think to this point, we've already seen Gilmore leave. You will lose both of those great defensemen and Suter and McInnes. You know, yeah. Newendike will be gone. I believe it also sort of coincided with salaries becoming public at the time, which is a big deal in the NHL. And and Calgary at that point, for whatever reason, was a small market and not really willing to pay market prices. You could make more playing for the Rangers or the Leafs, huge markets. There wasn't a cap. I mean, walk us through what, what that sort of did to the room as you so, slowly saw this trickle of these, these veteran cup winners leaving. 
Yeah, it was a fact of life. You're correct. Uh, suddenly, uh, salary information was available. Um, it looked like a couple of those players you're talking about wanted the million-dollar mark, and, and that made us all nervous. Uh, ownership, everybody was nervous about kind of breaking that million-dollar barrier, and where was this going to go? Where would it stop if it started? And so uh, we did make uh, – there was trades made that uh, to retool, get younger players, uh, you know, maybe get a couple of players – in terms of letting a big salary go, you could add a couple more players and win through depth, things like that. But it did change the flames. But they lost. I mean, we lost some really good players, and uh, Al McGinnis was a big loss. Mike Vernon was a yeah. terrific loss. Mike was a, a really good goalie, but again, um, salaries became a factor. We were a small market team, and there's no question the attraction of playing in the U.S. in big markets uh, was something all players wanted. So, yeah, it, it was difficult to watch, and then. As you said, Ryan, for nine or 10 years, uh, the team struggled to make the playoffs. And uh, uh, it was a tough time. And the, the loyalty of the Calgary fans was certainly tested, uh, but they passed yeah. the test well. You know, you're right. There was some lean years in there. It was a quiet building, but but it's, you still had that 12, 13, 14, 15,000. Even if the teams weren't making the playoffs, that would have been sort of from 97 through to 04. Um, but it's, uh, it was challenging times. What was your relationship like with ownership when that was happening? Cause, cause you noted that like, there's gotta be a lot of, I guess, uncertainty and fear when all of a sudden it's like, Oh, well, this guy in the Rangers is making one and a half. I'm better than him. Like, come on guys, pay me. Yeah. Our ownership was, uh, oh gosh, they were terrific. It was the Seaman brothers, uh, people, uh, like that Harley Hotchkiss, just some wonderful Bill Hay was involved in us as an advisor. There were some really, really good people. And, you know, the Flames was established as an NHL team, but the philosophy of the ownership was they wanted the team to do something for the city and do something for the province. They wanted to see sport, not just hockey, sport grow within the province. So a lot of the profits were plowed right back into amateur sport in the province of Alberta. So it was a very unique situation with that uh, Flames 75 project that they established to funnel money into youth sports. Um, so... It was difficult for these people because they had this philosophy they wanted to maintain. Salaries were starting to move up to a level that made everybody very uncomfortable. And so the decision was made, we're going to have to you know, adjust and uh, we can't keep everybody. Uh, if somebody breaks the mold in terms of 1.3, 1.4 million, that sets the bar for everybody else. And they didn't want that to get away. They wanted to keep mm -hmm. uh, things operating at a budget that they felt was fair. So... Yeah, it's a lot of teams suffered that, not just Calgary. This came up the other day in a chat we had with Jason Weimer. The other thing too is uh, your exchange rate was a big thing because uh, you know a yeah. lot of guys would be getting paid in U.S. dollars today. Everyone is, but I think back then it might have been a mixed bag. So you're you're yeah. collecting tickets and popcorn revenue and TV and radio rights in Canadian dollars, and then you're paying out your expenses in American. And if the exchange rate ain't right, you might lose 20, 30 points off what you had budgeted the the season prior, or whatever it may be. Yeah, there was a lot of those uh, a lot of those considerations, Ryan, that went into operating a franchise. Because you're right, some of your players made Canadian dollars, and a lot of your players they're not a lot, but there's enough players that were on two way contracts where you could send them mm -hmm. down and, and back and forth. So uh, it was a time when uh, the game was really changing financially, uh, and all of a sudden the game was going to. And for the players, obviously, it's a better deal now because they, they are getting paid well, but. That was the start of the process. It really affected the Canadian cities a lot uh, because we had to deal with that uh, Canadian dollar versus the U.S. dollar. But, you know, we had strong ownership. We had stable people. 
uh, they, uh, Flames knew exactly what they were doing. And, uh, you know, we had some uh, adjusting to do, but we did it. Uh, there would be a work stoppage that followed, which isn't surprising given all the topics that we, we talked about. And uh, yeah. that came the season after, after your three seasons had finished in Calgary. You uh, ended up in Japan for that season, if I'm correct. Tell us how that came to be, because to go to coach the Calgary Flames and then your next stop is in Japan, that's safe to say that's a non-traditional path. Yeah, I had a chance to go coach the uh, Los Angeles Kings, but uh, the gentleman who owned the Kings, I think, was thrown in jail at that time. So I just felt like that didn't sound like a good one. So I had, through my international hockey with uh, Hockey Canada national team, we had played several tours every year in Japan, so I knew the Federation well. They contacted me. They were going to host the uh, Nagano Olympics. They were concerned that they were going to be uh, embarrassed, not competitive. Would I come over and uh, help with the national team? But more importantly, uh, help educate their coaches to coach at a higher level because uh, they knew Nagano was coming up. So I got a chance to work there for a year and a half, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It was That was one of the nice things about my coaching career. Uh, I had a chance, as you said earlier, Ryan, coached in five different countries and really enjoyed that. I found that to be uh, really interesting because every country has its own hockey culture, distinctly different. And uh, so that was really a terrific experience for me personally. Now, was that something where, where was awareness about the sport at, at that point? And maybe what were some unique experiences that you'd, you could only have had in Japan being a hockey coach from Canada? Well, first of all, the Japanese players were small, quick, and very polite. So small is not good. Uh, quick is very good, <laughs> but polite is not good. So I can remember thinking, my goodness, how can these guys ever compete against these big, strong international teams at the Olympic Games? Because we had some huge competition ahead of us. But And the, one of the most interesting experiences, the first practice, Ryan, I ever watched, I went over in the summer and, and the national team is practicing. So I'm, I'm watching the team practice and they're doing some line rushes, you know, breaking out and going down the, uh, in through the middle zone, attacking three on two or five on two. And it struck, suddenly it struck me. I, I said to my translator, am I clear? Here's the same fellow on every line, always shoot the puck. Oh, he said, yes, yes, that's right. He's the oldest. And I thought, Oh my God. There's culture for you. I mean, all you got to do is yeah. check the oldest line and no one's going to score because they always pass to the guy <laughs> who was the elder, you know, and that's the respect in the country. So wow, it was really interesting to have to change that uh, for hockey. We didn't want to change their culture, but for the sport, we had to become uh, a little bit more aggressive and uh, get away from some of those things because it, it made us very predictable. You got to just doctor the birth certificates and they'll start checking the wrong guy. <laughs> but uh, that That's wild. Like that concept is, is just out of left field here, but for in Japan where respect is so huge and, you know, people older oh, than yeah. you, you know, like you look up to it, like that, that it makes sense, but you never would think it would be applied in sport to that level. That's, that's incredible. Oh yeah. Like Ryan, we'd have a timeout in practice, a water break and all the veteran guys would head to the bench and sit there and all the rookies would grab all the water and the cups and serve them and give them their towel. And uh, I thought to myself, my goodness, this is going to have to change. I mean, they're all players and they're all equal in our eyes. We can't have this cast system yeah. within a hockey team and be successful. So, yeah, it was terrific. 
Well, and just as, as a place to live and, and travel and, and take your wife, Linda, and, and maybe, you know, your family as well, that would have been an incredible experience. Hockey really did get to show you a bunch of the world. And Japan might be the most unique culture you visited uh, in, in terms of the, how opposite it might be from here. Yeah, it really was uh, very uh, enlightening. And, uh, you know, we lived in Tokyo, which is a great big, huge city, which we really enjoyed very much. I got to travel up to Sapporo to the northern island of Hokkaido. And so really educationally, it was terrific experience. And uh, just to see how the Japanese, uh, it's such a, so many people packed into Tokyo. If there wasn't respect, I can't imagine that city yeah. surviving, but an immense amount of respect for everybody, for each other. And uh, really, uh, there's not much crime in Tokyo. It's a pretty good city to live yeah. in. I believe it's the largest concentration of humans in, on earth, like the biggest city. Yeah. And it's also like the most polite. And if you leave your wallet on the ground, it'll be there tomorrow. There's almost yep. no crime. Like have, I visited as well. And it, it feels like humanity's greatest feat is Tokyo, that that could actually engineering wise and socially could work is remarkable. Yeah, I found it. Uh, you know, the Japanese, I learned one thing from the Japanese, and that is nothing is impossible. You know, they built that uh, surfing uh, machine in the Tokyo Bay so they can surf and have big waves. Uh, they built a big a ski tunnel. It's this huge ski tunnel. It's indoor. It's refrigerated. And I think there's a, as many as three or 400 people at one time can ski down this big tunnel and uh, snow ski. So it's nothing's impossible in Japan. It was really uh, quite a culture. Uh, so you did some work with... Uh... In Japan, you're back in the NHL, yep. assistant yep. coach in Montreal, head coach again yep. in Columbus. Yep. Uh, what did you notice in terms of the difference of being a head coach internationally, a head coach in the NHL, an assistant in the NHL? Like those are very different roles, and you're dealing with different players, especially when you're talking about a, a short international tournament versus this guy's making X amount of dollars and may or may not have any interest in listening to you. You can't just demote them. You know, those are very yep. different jobs, aren't they? Yeah, I, I found, uh, I'll talk a little bit about Montreal. First of all, great place to coach, uh, one of the most historic franchises uh, in existence. And to be an assistant coach with Alain Vigneault as the head coach there was terrific. I, I All of a sudden, I had never been an assistant coach before, Ryan. So it was a new role for me, and I got to spend more time with the players. Yes, as a head coach, you spend a lot of time with the players, but there's always a little distance there. There's less distance between coach and player when you're an assistant coach. So it gave me a little bit of a sneak peek of maybe taking a little different approach should I become a head coach again. And uh, I realized at that point in time, you know, I can be a bit, I, you know, you can be closer to the players. Nothing wrong with that. And I think uh, I learned a lot about just uh, having a really good rapport with the players and how important that was when I was an assistant coach in Montreal. Is there a place where hockey means more than it, than it does to the people that live in Montreal? I mean, just the, the, the history, nope. uh, the only French-speaking place. I mean, I feel like it's it, it, you, you can't duplicate that, can you? No. Uh, gee, every night, like especially Saturday night games in Montreal, my goodness, the lead-up to the game, uh, everything, like before the game, the, the spectators outside, uh, they're early to ready to rush into that arena. The first five minutes, Ryan <laughs> – they gave you five minutes and that was it. Like if you didn't play well right away, uh, you heard from the fans and I'm telling you, so we'd always tell our guys, you know, first five minutes, if it moves, hit it. If you got the puck, shoot it. 
Um, skate as fast as you can. Give them every impression you're working your tail off because that was really important because they are very critical. But I'll tell you what a wonderful place. I, I can remember, uh, you know, having some terrific uh, seasons with Montreal. Really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, it was a, it's a classic hockey environment because it means a lot to the people. It's a cultural thing. They're very proud of mm -hmm. the fact that their uh, French-Canadian uh, history is strong within that franchise. I can remember there's a room down by the dress room called Les Enchions. It's old timers. And if we okay. lost a game, as the guys walked, as the old timers walked by the dressing room doors to uh, go into their, their private room, especially the pocket rocket, Richard, he'd stop for a second, put his hands out and like, and then just go, you know, ah, you guys, <laughs> well, she won 11 Stanley cups, you know? And so it's a few. it was, uh, it was interesting to, to have that environment, but really, really terrific. And both Linda and I really enjoyed Montreal, great city and uh, great culture. Call Peter Klein at McLeod Law at 403-254-3864 or go online at mcleod-law.com. You can also find them on social media at McLeod Law LLP. You know Peter Klein at McLeod Law, personal injury guy, but also he's the go-to guy in the city for your disability insurance claims. If your long-term disability insurance company is refusing to pay insurance benefits to you, Contact Peter. He's going to help you out. He'll get you the disability benefits you paid for and you deserve. He'll get you your peace of mind back, the peace of mind you paid for. It's time to discover or rediscover the legendary St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. Planning a golf trip, a romantic getaway, or maybe just some tranquility away from the city? St. Eugene is the answer. Hotel, championship golf course, casino, spa, restaurants, all of it nestled in the spectacular Rocky Mountains and just minutes outside of Cranbrook, BC. Visit their website, steugene.ca, and experience the history and heritage of the St. Eugene Golf Resort and Casino. Did you did you learn French? Did you already know French with your time on the national team? You would have had some some players from Quebec. Uh, I mean, I know for a head coach that's important there, but I'm, I'm more curious about you and your approach. You usually like to immerse yourself as much as possible. Yeah, I knew enough French. If they spoke at a reasonable rate, I could understand. And uh, I'd taken French starting in grade seven in Winnipeg when I lived there. So I'd had three or four okay. years of high school French. So I had enough to get by. Uh, although in meetings, uh, if they broke up into French and got passionate, I mean, I was out the window in terms of trying to figure out what they were saying. But they were terrific. Uh, the team, you know, has a French-Canadian connotation to it, strong one. But yep. they operate... Yeah, uh, speaking in English, and uh, you know, Rajan, who was the GM and a wonderful man, uh, Alain Vignon, good, really a good young coach. Uh, it was a great situation, and I was always very proud to be part of that uh, organization because it is so historic uh, in hockey. Yeah, that's fair. And your next stop was not historic, and you didn't need to know much French. You were off to Columbus where the yeah. Blue Jackets were not an expansion team, but not far from it, I imagine. Where were they at? And what kind of a situation were you walking into there with, I believe, Doug McLean running the show? Yeah. We, were a, we were an expansion team um, in that era. Oh, Ourselves okay. in Minnesota came in the same year uh, as an expansion team, Ryan. And uh, they weren't hospitable to, find, to, uh, to the new franchises in those days. Yeah. Uh, you didn't get a lot of, of really established players. Now expansion is designed so that the team coming in an expansion 
has an opportunity to be relatively competitive. In fact, quite competitive right away if it's operated possibly, uh, properly. We had a, a real difficult time, as did Minnesota. We both came in. Uh, Jacques Lemaire was coaching there. I was coaching in Columbus. And uh, it was a battle all year. We wanted to see which of the, which of the uh, expansion teams could finish in front of the, the other. And we finished ahead of them, which was uh, our big satisfaction. We finished uh, – we actually finished pretty well. We had a record for a little while for expansion team points. Um, and it was a good group. And I loved coaching that team because, Ryan, we had so many guys with so much to prove. And yeah. it just gives you that impression that when guys have a, an edge to their game and a reason to really show people what they can do, uh, they take advantage of it. So we had a wonderful group of guys, and it was a real good experience, and I really enjoyed it. And, uh, uh, but they still, they still str they struggled for a long time. I mean, they, yeah. they've had an yeah. up-and-down uh, uh, seasons there. And I think now with Mike Babcock, uh, you know, I think they're ready now to maybe uh, take another step and, and get back into the hunt. Did you find any similarities between the national team and an expansion team? Like sort of these cast-offs in a way that, you know, we weren't wanted elsewhere and here's a place where we can band together and sort of you share that common identity or am I off a bit? No, you're right on, Ryan. That's a very good comment, by the way. I think, uh, I think that's your ace in the hole when you're an expansion team in those days was, you know, um, we have to prove to people that we're better than they think we are. And so we were all on the same page. Uh, everybody played for for each other. It was really easy to coach that team in terms of there wasn't a night that went that we wouldn't compete. We always gave our best effort. And we had Dallas, Detroit, and, and they were loaded with uh, great teams in those days. Uh, you know, when we played Detroit, their five guys on the ice, if they had the top five on the ice, made more than our whole roster by a good portion. Jeez. So, you know, this was the edge we needed. We had to compete. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was terrific. And, uh, you know, Gerard Gallant was on our staff, Newell Brown, uh, some really good assistant coaches. And uh, wow. I, I really enjoyed it. It was terrific. That's interesting. I, I, you, you, you nailed it where, like, we watched Seattle and Vegas. And, and I think anyone that – it's been a while since there was expansion prior to that. But it is so night and day what – the expansion teams in the nineties and early two thousands were given like it was scraps. And now it's like, you might get a top four defenseman, like Mark Giordano, a captain, you know, a top yeah. pair captain was, was available in expansion draft. You have, you know, guys that came in and scored 40 goals. Like it is an entirely different universe that these new expansion teams are operating in versus the one that yourself, Minnesota, you know, Tampa, Anaheim, all those, they, it, 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 people forget how bad those teams were. San Jose was miserable. I believe in one of their first couple of years, Ottawa was awful. Like it was so much tougher then. Yeah, Rhino was it. I didn't make, you know, I know they had their expansion fees that went to the league and that every team got a, a portion of that. And so it was a payday for everybody in the league. But to have teams so uh, over their head uh, didn't make a lot of sense. And I thought when they changed the expansion rules to make teams more competitive, uh, it was very exciting because to see, for example, Vegas in their first year go so far, very impressive. Uh, Seattle last year going as far as they went. I think it adds a real, uh, a real reality check for everybody. Um, yes, they have talented teams, but they really work too. I mean, even even with the, the talent level they have, when you are an expansion team, you never talk to your guys about working hard. They know. Yeah, yeah. You can't control skill level. You control your work ethic, and that, that is yeah. that was always the rep, right? The, these teams are going to work, yeah. but maybe won't have the skill we have. I. Uh, 
that comes to an end. Where was where, what was your one like there with in terms of the sport in Columbus in the state of Ohio? Ohio State football's king there, obviously. And then where was the state of the sport when you left? Because uh, to your point, you were handicapped by the rosters the league would allow you to collect. But at the same time, people were starting to learn about the sport and probably enjoying coming to live hockey, which I always think is the greatest selling point of this game. It's not watching on TV. Get people in the building, and, and they love hockey. Yeah, uh, Columbus is a wonderful franchise. I mean, uh, the fans embraced it. They understood an expansion team. Uh, they It was easy for us to sell because when Detroit came into town with the, all the Russian players and Dallas with uh, defending Stanley Cup champions, things like that, it, it really made – um, in a very marketable uh, game to go to. And uh, the fact that we would compete so hard, I think, was very entertaining for fans. And Columbus is a great franchise. It's a beautiful building. We had really strong ownership. And uh, I just felt it was going to be a really, really good franchise. As I said, they've, they've had a couple of blips where they've had pretty good years, but they've not been consistent like I think they had hoped. And so you know, I, I think now um, it could be a new era there, hopefully. But uh, with Ohio State football, believe me, you yeah. are competing against a huge entity. Um, my goodness, I I went to some games. It was unbelievable. Like, I can remember driving down the freeway one morning and Ohio State was playing Michigan that afternoon. I was going to the morning practice, and people were throwing these uh, Wolverine teddy bears out the windows of their cars and driving over them on the freeway. I thought, my God, what have I got into here? But that was Columbus. They they hated Michigan. They hated everybody. Yeah. But they uh, they had great teams and uh, it was terrific. It was a great sports town. Really a great sports town. We had a soccer team that was the best in the yep. MLS and and won the championship a few times. But uh, the hockey became a really important entity there and still is. And you, you guys would get an attendance bump when college football was done, I imagine. They always talked about that in some of these markets where college football's king. You get into, you know, December, January, February, and all of a sudden you, you'd see bigger crowds and you could you could schedule a game on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, we had we had great spe- uh, spectatorship in Columbus. Uh, even during the football season, our games would sell out. We I think we sold out almost every game. It just, we were something new. Uh, it was a top professional league. It was well-marketed. We had a great marketing staff. And, uh, yeah, it was a terrific situation. I, I just think there was so much optimism. It's a great time for a franchise to be part of it because uh, even in the toughest times, everybody's optimistic it's going to get better. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you eventually get over to Russia, and I know there's some stops along the way, and you, you can talk about Germany if you'd like. And uh, you, you've coached internationally to – Great success. You've, you've coached a national championship at Canadian University. You've now been to the pro ranks. What did the KHL offer you, and what was the the thought to head over? Because you were the first. You broke the mold. There were not North American coaches in, I guess this is prior to the KHL, the Russian Super Elite League. How did that come to be? And walk us through that decision tree, because you were the first to do it as a North American. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, you know, I knew of the of the KHL or Super League at that time, and uh, uh, they, there was no North Americans ever coached. There was a couple of Czech coaches, but that was it. And just out of the blue, I get a phone call from a, an agent, Serge Levin from New York, and he says to me, there's a team in Russia, Magnitogorsk, uh, would like to talk to you at the World Championships about being their next head coach. And I thought, gosh, I've, you know, I've coached against the Russians and I was fascinated with Russian hockey because they taught us a lot and they, they've changed our game over here as to how it's played and 
all the fitness and those kind of things. So, Ryan, it was a great experience to, for me to think about going over and getting inside behind the scenes to see how they develop their players. So not only was I looking forward to the possibility of coaching in their top league, I was looking forward to seeing how they develop their players because you know, the Russian players do develop on a different model. And, uh, and I was mm -hmm. looking to see that and get firsthand experience with that. So Linda and I moved to Magnitogorsk. No one on this broadcast will know what where Magnitogorsk is. It's a steel city in the middle of Russia. And uh, gosh, it was a most unique experience. Every day, Ryan, was an interesting day. I don't think we ever had a day that we felt like it was repetitive. It wasn't. I've got a bunch of buddies that played over there and I, I, I don't think there's better stories than KHL and Russian stories. Oh. Cause it's just, it's, yeah, Ryan, I can tell someone you, said first... to me, the longer you live there, the less it makes sense, which feels like the opposite, but that's how upside down it can be compared yeah, to the life that, that, is, that we enjoy here. One of the important things about any uh, change of culture is don't always ask why, why, why just accept it because it's the way they do things. I said, I'm going to try to change things within the team, but uh, in terms of everything else, it's going to be whatever they think is right. I remember our first road game, a preseason road game. We were uh, had long training camp. We were going to fly to Moscow to play in a tournament there in the preseason. So I go to the more I go to the rink in the morning to catch the bus to the airport. And I thought it was the setup group for a rock band, the way they were dressed. God, guys had hats on backwards. They had all these jackets with jeans that were torn. I thought. They travel like this. I mean, I'd never experienced that. I, I was surprised. And but that's the way it was. Um, you know, it's changed a lot since then. But uh, I remember uh, Dmitry Yaskevich coming over to me because he knew he was. He, I could see him looking at me. And I was kind of bewildered as to how we were dressed. And he came over and said, uh, "Kinger, this is the KHL, not the NHL." And so I learned right away things are going to be different. And uh, uh, I also had a chance to coach Malkin and Nikolai Kulin. Wow. Uh, with yeah. that team and they were fantastic young players. So it was a great experience. So young Evgeny Malkin for Metalurg puts up 47 yep. points in 46 games. Uh, yep. That th what, what was he like? And did you, did everyone seem to think he was going to go on and have the career that he's had to this point? Yeah, he, he was, oh, he was, he was 18 turning 19 when I had him. So he was still a, a young, young guy. He had had that great season, as you mentioned, as an 18-year-old. And uh, he uh, he decided games in the last three to four minutes so many times for us. Uh, we only lost five games that year. And he was uh, he was a guy who struck late in a close game. Malcolm would find a way. He'd evaporate one-on-one, uh, -on -one, uh, beat people with his skill and his speed. And not only was he a great player, an unbelievable person, like a, a – a lot of Russian players are quite dour. They grow up in the game and they're constantly being pushed. And so they do get that demeanor where they're uh, reserved and they're almost robotic. Uh, you know, they march to the tune of the coaches playing. But Malk was really different, very outgoing, big smile on his face. And he was a really important part of our team because uh, he was our best player, but also a very different character. And, uh, uh, truly a good, a good hockey player. Uh, and he, uh, he's had a great career in the NHL. So that was a lockout year. Do, who else would you have seen over there? Oh, five Oh six. It's the year after the, the flames. I guess that would have been well, four or five. So it's the year after the lockout. Interesting. So you still, he, he's 18 and 19 in the, in the, in the Russian league. That's what you're saying. 
Yeah, yeah. He's just a young kid. Like the uh, wow. the year I coached him, um, what happened for Malk was he he played in every senior Russian tournament that year. Plus, he also okay. played in the World Junior Championships. Plus, he played in the KHL. So the guy was just completely overplayed. And it, in the playoffs, it, it became a factor because he just was dead tired. But um, he was that good. And uh, he was just a, a guy who the uh, you could tell right away this was going to be probably a legendary player in Russia. And that's what he's become. I mean, you can talk yeah. about Ovechkin, but Malkin will also be revered over there in that same class. Outdoor Dental is dentistry with no needles, no drills, and no stress. Their Salaya laser treatment is an excellent solution for people who experience dental phobia. In one to two minutes, you'll be relaxed, comfortable, pain-free, and back onto your day in minutes. Also, Outdoor Dental does snoring treatments. Two 15-minute sessions can increase the tension in the soft palate in the back of your throat, which reduces snoring. It's non-surgical and pain-free. Again, just two 15-minute treatments. Outdoor Dental does snoring treatments as well. Two 15-minute sessions can increase the tension of the soft palate, which reduces snoring. It's non-surgical and pain-free. Also at Outdoor Dental, dental implant treatment can be scary for many, confusing, expensive. They use cutting-edge dental technology to ensure you're happy, healthy, and you'll feel confident in your results. Check them out online. It's Dr. Jay Patel at Outdoor.Dental. Vita Nova is Calgary's lab-grown diamond specialist. They're the only store in Calgary that specializes exclusively in lab-grown diamonds. You know you're getting the largest selection of loose lab-grown diamonds and jewelry in the entire city. Savings from lab-grown diamonds can be as much as 80% off. Visit vinanova.com or check them out in their downtown showroom on the second level of Stephen Avenue Place. What is a lab-grown diamond? Well, lab-grown diamond, simply a diamond that's been grown in a lab. They have the same chemical composition and crystal structure as natural earth mined diamonds due to its identical nature. Lab created diamonds have the same hardness, right? Refraction and pretty much the same as a natural diamond. Only difference they're lab created and referred to as synthetic because they are chemically and physically the same, but are man-made. Be confident knowing you can save up to 80% compared to mine diamonds pretty much across the board. If you want a custom design done, Vina Nova can do that as well. Just give them a few weeks of heads up to complete your custom piece. Find out more at venanova.com. Yeah, and I think a surefire Hall of Famer here. I mean, they're just one of those guys, three rings. Uh, it's it's weird. It's yeah. almost like if he didn't have a certain teammate, we might talk more about him, but I think he yeah. might find that a-okay. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the, the league over there isn't built for a coach that doesn't speak Russian to come in and start coaching. How how did you get through that as the first? Because the pioneers are, are always the ones that have to like break through these doors and figure out solutions to problems we didn't know existed. You're, you're going to rinks and nothing's written in English. You're, you're not able to communicate like you would anywhere else in your coaching career. Walk us through some of the challenges of year one. And then maybe how you were accepted, as you noted, the team had a great season. As you started to win, what changed? Well, you know, it, it is interesting. I had an off-ice translator to do all my off ice things, traveling, all that kind of thing. On the ice, I used, uh, I had Dmitry Yaskevich, who had played a long time in uh, the NHL for Toronto and Chicago, teams like that. I had uh, Igor Korolev, who also played in Toronto, Chicago. Uh, so I had a couple of other players that spoke English, but those two guys that played in the NHL, Ryan, they knew the type of game I probably was going to try to help us deliver. And so they were really terrific because... Uh, you could use any slang expression and they could put it into Russian. 
they understood the game technically. They were well coached when they were over here. So they were terrific. They were more than translators. They were actually translators, assistant coaches, because they had to do a lot of work on my behalf. But it worked out well. And I think, uh, you know, it was interesting because we went through the preseason and I think we played gonna, 21 preseason games. Oh, Like in the NHL now, they play three or four. We played 21 games in the preseason. God, we were playing from early uh, July right through the end of August. We played 21 games in all Jeez. these tournaments. So um, we really got it down to a fine art, though, in terms of the translation. And what I did, I learned all the Russian, uh, all the common hockey, reoccurring common hockey situations. I learned uh, in Russian uh, how to say that. So I could behind the bench uh, talk with short expressions in Russian that would get me through some situations. When it came down to really giving a player feedback, I had to use my translators and, and that's what we did, but it worked out well. And then we started to win. Uh, we In the preseason, we won every tournament we were in. And I used video, Ryan, which these guys have not. The only time the Russians in that era had video is when they played poorly. The coach would put it on and make them watch the whole bloody game as he ranted and raved about how bad they were. Okay. So the video was something I used it to teach and short vignettes, you know, uh, fifth, maybe 10, 12, 15 clips and some of it positive, some of it here since we have to improve on. And it really got interesting. In fact, one day I'm, I'm doing a video session and I look in the back and our, our equipment guy has got his own little video camera and he's videoing me doing the video it became fascinating for everybody around to see this uh, stuff. And so being the first North American coach there, we all used video. That was nothing new. It wasn't that I was unique in any way, but um, yeah. they really enjoyed it. They embraced it. And that really helped our team a lot. And uh, uh, it was great to be the first North American coach there. And uh, what a great country to live in. It was terrific. And uh, I got to tell you, I have a lot of very good feelings about coaching in Russia. What were your rapport like with the other coaches? I mean, I mean, at the beginning, you're kind of the outsider, but by mid-season, they're like, oh, well, maybe there are some things to learn from Coach King. Yeah, though, no, I was really interested. Like, you know, uh, Yerzinov was coaching. He was the assistant coach with Tikhanov, and he was still coaching uh, uh, Moscow Dynamo, and a lot of old established coaches were still in the league. And I'll tell you, I found them very terrific. Like, often um, the morning skate before, uh, uh, like the day you arrive, and you have your afternoon skate the next day you're going to play. They'd often stay and watch the practice, come down and talk. And I really had a great rapport with a lot of these guys because I had met a lot of them in my time with the national team because they had coached national B teams as well as maybe helped taking off with the A team. So I had a rapport with them from over 10 years with the national team. So it made it very easy to, to be able to talk to these guys and, uh, uh, really enjoy myself. And I, I coached in the all-star game that year, the first all-star game they ever had. And, uh, wow. and my assistant coaches were Peter Vorobiev and uh, Yerzinov. And uh, God, we had so much fun that night. So it, it was a great experience. Unreal. And uh, so it's two years there. Are, are you, yeah. uh, we, we, yesterday on the show, I mean, we're going to play this next week, but uh, when people yeah. are watching this a week ago, we had Jeff Glass on and Jeff played net over in Russia for yeah. years. And he said, yeah. when I came back to North America at 30, it was just time. I, I and, and he was at a total different stage than you, but he was like, I want to have a kid. I'm not doing that in Russia. There's just a level mm -hmm. of chaos that you have to live in. You're not a, a, a local there. You're an outsider and you can do it, but it wears on you a bit. 
were you ready to come home after a couple seasons or, or was there a relief of coming back? Cause you, you certainly achieved a lot, but Russia was never going to be home and you were never going to be a Russian, right? Yeah, that's right, Ryan. I think, uh, you know, we enjoyed it. Uh, and we never ever felt like it was uh, a hardship to be in Russia. We had to adapt to my wife, Linda adapted to so many things. Um, just going grocery shopping was a real challenge in Magnitogorsk, a steel city with, uh, no westernization to it at all. So it was really uh, fascinating. It's a good word to describe the life there. But, uh, you know, I just had a chance to come back and, and get involved with Dave Tippett and Phoenix and decided that uh, that would be a, a very interesting experience and get back into some NHL hockey. And then again, I got a call eight or nine years later to go to Yaroslavl. And Yaroslavl was an interesting experience because they were the team that a year before had had the plane crash. And a good friend of mine, Brad McCrimmon, had coached that team. And Igor Korolev and guys like who had played for me were on that team. And they all uh, died in the plane crash. So going to Yaroslavl was very unique because I knew it was a team that uh, had struggled to, to get back into the elite league. Um, hockey was a big part of their culture, too. And so going to Yaroslavl was a really good experience. And I really enjoyed it. It was uh, wonderful to be with that team and we had a terrific playoff went a long way in the playoffs and uh, it really uplifted the spirits of those people within that uh, that city and I'll tell you Ryan if you've ever seen anything uh, you've seen nothing like it when you go to Yaroslavl the respect for all the people that died in the plane crash was profound and it goes on every day it's not stopped since the lighting the flame the flowers all that stuff goes on every day and so it was really a very unique experience. I really enjoyed it. Well, and I feel like that that would feel like you're part of something bigger than sport. I remember the, in the Vegas's expansion season, they had that horrific shooting at uh, yeah. the concert outside of a of a hotel, and you know that was something the team rallied around. And more than that, the community they found hockey as a way to escape or to start a healing process. It was a place where community could gather you would have been a part of that healing process in Yaroslavl as well, I imagine, especially if the team was doing well. I mean, this was part of getting better, at least, I, I think. Yeah, you know, the team has struggled all season, but in the playoffs, we just caught fire. And we, uh, you know, we beat uh, Moscow Dynamo, finished first in the league. Uh, then we played St. Petersburg, who had uh, uh, a lot of NHL players on that team. And, uh, you know, Panarin, guys like that, uh, Kovalev, uh, Kovalchuk. Uh, wow. we beat them in six games and then we went to the final against uh, Lev Prague and uh, that's where we lost out at that the conference final but that really started people like it just the, the city caught fire again in Yaroslavl and you know people didn't come up and say congratulations they said thank you and I, I had hmm. so many people come up and just they just touch your arm and say thank you you know spasiba uh, because it Yes, they were. It was part of the healing process. So for me, that was a very emotional uh, time. I went to the cemetery and uh, you know put flowers on Brad McCrimmon's gravesite and things like that. And some of the players I had coached who had passed away in the crash. It was really a sobering thing. I'm really lucky to be able to have coached there, and I really enjoyed it. Your first book, uh, King of Russia, yeah. was was phenomenal. One of my favorite books uh, in sport be, because you you have so many great anecdotes about your time over there. First in in Metalurg, where you, you sort of broke that North American barrier as a coach, and and just the the anecdotes of, of 
something as simple as like going out and seeing stray dogs and, or how do, how do we shop for food? Or, or you know, you, you don't realize how, you know, it was not necessarily a first world city that you lived in there relative to what we're used to over here. Uh, I can't encourage people enough uh, to, to go find that book and read some of the anecdotes. And you've sprinkled some in as well in your new book called Loose Pucks and Ice Bags, how yeah. and why the game is changing. Tell us about the new book what you're uh, yeah. you've set out to accomplish and what readers can expect because you you you, you frame it right at the base here and I'm not drawing drills here I want to explain the thought behind stuff you've got great little stories anecdotes one liners it's it's a very easy read and a nice page page turner for for all hockey fans in my opinion yeah you know loose pucks and ice bags was the title I chose for the book because it's a very sophisticated game now i mean we have large coaching staffs. We have a lot of technical uh, video, computers, analytics. We've got a lot of things to help us analyze the game, but it still comes down and it always will to loose pucks and ice bags. Loose pucks means that you get to the puck first, which allows you to be in control of a difficult situation or a very productive possibility. Uh, Ice bags simply means you competed. Like I've always felt when I come back into the dressing room and guys are putting the ice bags on, I, I just impressed me, you know, that that was uh, that's com- that's competing. So I chose that as the title for the book because uh, and the book talks a lot about, uh, you know, the game, how it's changing tactically and uh, the evolution of the game and how the Russians affected our game. And uh, it talks about old time hockey and how we've changed from the 50s and 60s, where uh, players were mainly it was serfdom in those days uh, to now where they, they are in control of the game to a great extent. So I, I really enjoyed writing the book. I tried to make it readable. Um, there is parts of the book that are quite technical and tactical, but still I tried to get the message across that uh, the game is changing and it's changing in a very positive way. And uh, it, it's an exciting product now. I really like the kind of game we're getting. I think the players just, Ryan, the players are so much better now. You know, it's interesting. My son yeah. coaches in Moose Jaw with the uh, Moose Jaw Warriors in the Western Hockey League. And when I watch those kids practice, I mean, their practices are so uh, sophisticated and organized and, and, and the requirements to play the game, they're dealing with, like, if, if you want to be good, you got to be good at the things that happen a lot in the course of a game. That's simple. And these kids are because they're well coached uh, right up from midget up now. Uh, the quality of coaching in our country has just gone through the roof. We have some problems with our game. We have some problems with some behavior. And that's the side of the game we have to look at. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it was an interesting book, and I really enjoyed writing it. Uh, I have to give my wife, Linda, a lot of credit. She proofread a lot and did a lot of typing, but it was fun. She can add editor to the uh, the, the yeah. travel assistant and coordinator. I know you, 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 you never fail to point out how integral she is, not just to helping you in terms of moving around, but keep the glue to the family to keep everyone together. I, I don't imagine you can live in six, seven different countries and coach around in three different continents without massive amounts of help from Linda. Yeah, you have to. I mean, I think, yeah, you know, the ability to adapt is really important. And, uh, you know, she has that in spades and Linda can adjust to any situation and she had fun. I mean, she enjoyed every one of our coaching uh, uh, escapades. And uh, so that, that was good for us, really good for us. Couple of quick ones. Uh, you spend yep. a lot of time in Arizona. You hang on there as a development yep. guy and then as an advisor. Yep. That's probably, I bet you, you'd have a ton of anecdotes about how skilled the young players are that you would get yep. to deal with, be it at the NHL or prospects that are on their way up. And uh, and then beyond that, uh, the, the Pyeongchang experience would have been just a, a, a fascinating one that 
uh, you get sort of brought in for one final Olympics. And, and I don't know if, you, if that was planned or how, how that came to be, but I feel like if that's the last you know, place that Dave King's name gets put on as a coach, that, that's pretty cool that you get to close it out at the Olympics if that's the case. Yeah, it was really a, a cool experience. Uh, you know, I was very honored to be asked to be part of that coaching staff uh, along with, uh, you know, Willie Desjardins and uh, Scott uh, uh, and along with, um, um, oh, I forget the other name. Anyway, but uh, it was really a good experience. I really enjoyed it. Um, I felt that uh, we had a good uh, group of players. It was a very unique uh, situation. Sean Burke was the GM and Sean yeah. did an excellent job of doing the international scouting, evaluating players, which is very difficult because they're playing in different leagues. And so our team didn't get much time together. We had to bring it together quickly. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. And they played very well. We lost a real tough game at the Olympics that probably took us out of the gold medal game. But we really bounced back uh, in the bronze medal game and won the bronze. And uh, those kids were terrific. And what a great experience. Uh, the Olympics has changed quite a bit, Ryan. There's been you know examples yeah. now of where the NHL players haven't gone. So it's gone in a different direction at times and uh, certainly makes it very exciting for everyone. Yeah. Interesting. Um, what, what makes you happy now? I mean, you're, you're 75 years old, if I'm correct, you've coached for five different decades. Is there still an itch or a party you're missing or are you happy to kick back and, you know, maybe show up for the odd practice, your son's running in Moose Jaw, you know, you're spending a lot of your winners in Arizona where you've got great relationships with, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of people that have worked over the team there for years. Uh, you know, what what keeps you busy these days? Because I don't see you as the kind of guy that's just going to sit back in a, in a lazy boy. No, I'm I'm a guy who is busy for sure. Um, I have this streak of high energy within me that I just have a hard time sometimes to bottle up. But, uh, you know, I, when I look at uh, at the situation, I it's funny, Ryan, I don't watch a great deal of NHL hockey. I find it too hard. I get in front, I watch, I'll change channels and change games all the time, but I, I have a real hard time watching it because I miss it so much. You know, uh, mm. people think I must be glued to the TV. I watch enough, but I, I don't watch uh, as much as people think I would watch. I follow it very carefully. I still read a lot of hockey, write a lot of hockey. I still do a lot of coaching seminars and clinics because I really want to try to help our coaches that coach the kids and, and allow them to do a better job and have more fun for both the player and the coach. It's too many times now you see uh, coaches, uh, I think, uh, not enjoy the experience. And when a coach is not enjoying it, for sure the kids don't. So I spent a lot of time doing coaching clinics, uh, a lot of podcasts like this. Uh, and I really find that very, very enjoyable. Guys, it's Pinder looking at the Betway app. Ooh, there's some fun to be had on some season win totals for NFL clubs. Yeah, we've got kickoff. What, like next week? Unreal. Can't wait. Let's see if we can find some numbers here. Ooh, look at this. Steelers win total, eight and a half. I'm going to take the over from my boy, producer Jack. It's minus 150, so people are leaning over, but I think they can get to nine wins, a nine and eight season. That would be not horrible, but I think they can do that. Nice little pick it to pickings combo. See if you can go find that one on Betway. Bet the responsible way. Every day on Barn Burner, the Pinder Report is brought to you by Village Honda. Village Honda has new Hondas arriving daily and has a huge pre-owned inventory. With over 70 used vehicles on site and access to over 400 more in their dealer group. All makes, all models, all budgets. It's award-winning service, a top-rated team. Village Honda is your dealership for life. Located in the Northwest Auto Mall and online at villagehonda.com.
And, and it's interesting. There's a thread that runs through all this. You know, when you when you start at the University of Saskatchewan and you do a decade with the national team, like you've always felt not just this obligation to to go out and win and have good teams, which I'm sure is important, but you you have to develop players and you want to leave the game in a better spot than you left it. Whether that's a team or a philosophy you can bring somewhere, be it to Russia or back from Russia to the national team. I mean, I, where does that come from? That I feel like you you feel a debt to to the sport that I think is very admirable. You know, when I was a young coach um, at the University of Saskatchewan, there's a couple of people uh, that I think people in Alberta will recognize. One was Claire Drake, coach of the University of Alberta, legendary. George Kingston, the University of Calgary. Both of these guys were senior coaches, way more experienced than I was, Ryan, way more capable than I was. And I was this young guy in uh, in the new coaching ranks at the college level. And these guys would share ideas in the summertime doing coaching conferences. After a game, you could talk to them and they would give you feedback on your team. And I just felt, wow, this is amazing. These guys are, they're worried about their teams and they want to do well, but they share. Uh, you know, they're they are very willing to try to help others in the game. And I just caught that uh, loud and clear. And I've always felt I should try to do that. And uh, so that's what I've really tried to do. And in many ways, uh, that's my legacy in the game is I've tried to be a help to other coaches, uh, help with, uh, you know, hockey curriculum for, for kids, for adults. But I am concerned right now with, uh, you know, trying to help uh, shape the game in a better way. I, I'd like the game to become a place where kids can play it. And and we we pay lip service to, to some of the values of the game. We have to work harder to deliver some of those values to the game. And it all starts with coaching. Um, and I think so, uh, you know, that's one of the focuses for me right now is can we make this a better game for kids to play, whether they go anywhere in the game or not, they should have more fun playing it, want to play it longer, maybe play it in the old timers type of situation, but we have to make it a better game for uh, boys and girls to play because it's a wonderful sport if it's treated properly and the right etiquette is applied to it. Well, I mean, it's it's incredible. The, the passion you have for the sport is really one of a kind. I always enjoy our chats and great to get you on the podcast here. I want to encourage everyone to head to amazon.com or .ca and grab the book Loose Pucks and Ice Bags by Dave King. How and why the game is changing. Coach, you've given us a lot of your time. I'm glad it's a rainy day in Waskasu. If this was a beach day, I'd feel very guilty. <laughs> Ryan, you're exactly right. I probably would not have done this if it was a great beach day. But thank you so much. And uh, yeah, it was a real pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. All the best to your crew. Thanks a ton. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to see your influence on the sport. Thanks so much for your time today. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. 
Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.